1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 through 25. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take your seats. Well, good morning, everybody. How is everybody? So this is our workshop morning. For those of you that have been tracking along with this series, it's going to be a fun morning. We are currently covering our values, simplicity, stillness, and spirit. We've been on a deep dive of the Holy Spirit, developing a theology of the Holy Spirit, lecturing on the Holy Spirit, teaching uh, what the Bible has to say and what the people of God and how we relate to the Holy Spirit. And we've covered a lot of ground to this point. Uh, we today want to transition a little bit from sort of seminary classroom to actual practitioners. And we're going to be talking about prophecy, prophecy. <laughs> and uh, it's been interesting hearing some of the feedback that's been coming back. You know, some of you are very excited about this session and these series, and some of you are like, oh, I just don't know about this. I don't know what we're doing. And so I want to set your heart at ease right here from the very beginning. Nothing within our Christian practice should be weird. The, Jesus was not weird. He was perfectly normal. The only thing that would be strange is for us to consider ourselves Christians but have no communication with our Father through the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did. And so there won't be anything strange today, uh, just a brief moment of 20 minutes of lecture, and then we're going to break off into groups. And I'm going to do a training this morning on how we do what we call listening prayer. Everybody, let's breathe in. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. We're the family of God. We are on our way to the kingdom he loves us. He cares for us. He doesn't want us to be weird. He wants to speak to us. He wants to speak through us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. King Jesus, come. Gracious Father, come. As Christians, we are on the precipice, I believe, of a grand renewal in the Western church, but it will come from the people of God. It will come from the people of God. Not certain people of God, not just one person, not just one speaker, not just one worship leader, not just one church. But even as Joel promised so many centuries ago that one day your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all people, your old men would dream dreams, your young men would see visions, and all brothers and sisters would prophesy, preach and herald the truth. The church is a modern-day guild of prophets. We are the proclaimers, the teachers, the guides, the pastors, the presence of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so this day, may you liberate the hearts of your people to respond to you and to speak for you on behalf of you. May you set us aflame with your glory, and I pray that you would rekindle thirst and hunger and anticipation and expectation in the people of God. That truly renewal and revival would break out upon us, starting in our own souls, where we wake up longing for the presence of God and expecting God to speak and to move in and through us in the course of our days for his glory and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. So most of you know some of my story. When I first became a Christian, I was dealing with uh, essentially a narcotics-induced psychosis. 
So I had a lot of strange issues that I was dealing with, and I lived in a very altered reality for about the first three years of my sobriety in Jesus. And one of the most terrifying things for me was going to small prayer gatherings at the church that I was a part of. Because whenever Christians got into a circle, they would pray together. And I was utterly astounded by the fact that one would pray over here, and then it was like magic. The other one would just know to pray across the circle. And then another one over in this circle, somewhere over here, they would know when it was their turn to pray. And I know this sounds silly, but as a baby Christian with the issues that I was dealing with, I was terrified that I couldn't hear the Holy Spirit like they could hear the Holy Spirit. I thought the Holy Spirit was going around the circle saying, now it's your turn. And then until one of those awkward prayer moments, until one of those awkward prayer moments where two people at the same time spoke over each other and did the awkward fumbling, oh, I'm sorry, you pray, no, I pray. And I was like, wait, which one wasn't listening to the Holy Spirit? Which one's faking it? (laughs) Which raises the crucial question for us as Christians in the modern age. We are scientific. We are rational. We are put together. We are people of control. How in the world do we hear God? How in the world are we to know when he wants us to do what he wants us to do. This is sort of the area that we have been exploring over the last few weeks. In our value series, we have three core values here at Neighbors Church. Simplicity, stillness, and spirit. I really, really encourage you to go back and listen to the previous teachings because they establish everything that we're going to practice this morning. Simplicity is just the process whereby we reduce the clutter of our calendars, our busy, overscheduled minds and hearts and souls, so that we can settle a little bit, so that we can move out of the distraction and put our attention solely on God. Simplicity reduces the clutter of our lives for the sake of bringing the kingdom more present, to make us more aware. Stillness is that contemplative peace that we're renewing within the Western church in these days. Stillness is the process whereby we stop running, we stop creating, we stop doing for the sake of just being still and learning to listen to our God in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. Simplicity and stillness really create the platform upon which the Holy Spirit can be hosted. The Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit guides, the Holy Spirit governs, He is indeed God among us as as much Jesus is God among us, the Father is God among us, this grand mystery of Orthodox Christianity, this thing we call the Trinity. But oftentimes the Holy Spirit just sort of takes a back seat in Western Christian practice. He's just sort of the, the obscure, weird uncle that's at the family reunion. We all know he's there. We kind of talk about him a little bit, but nobody really wants to engage with him too much because who knows what he's gonna say. It could get crazy. And so we have been exploring over these past eight weeks a pretty robust theology of the Holy Spirit, that he is the God from Genesis to Revelation who dwells among us and brings order to the chaos. He dwells in our hearts and brings order to the chaos of our own souls. Then we moved into these passages that Paul is addressing in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He is the God who gifts us and animates us in that the Holy Spirit is present at all times and all places everywhere, like air, we're breathing it right now, but sometimes air can get very focused, like when it's compressed into a pneumatic jackhammer, and there's an immense amount of power. And so the Holy Spirit is present now, and the Holy Spirit intends to manifest himself within his people through various gifts that he gives. 
We believe that those gifts can be given randomly at any given moment. Those gifts, some of them are continuous. Those gifts come out of our personalities, our desires, our experiences. It's a very complex and dynamic activity. Then we tackled the non-controversial topic of tongues. That's been a fun one. I've been hearing and getting a lot of feedback from the community group questions. Sounds like you guys got it all figured out. You guys know exactly what tongues is for. It totally makes sense. Obviously, tongues is one of those strange gifts, and that's actually why Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, chapter 14. He was saying there is this odd gift of tongues, and you seem to have elevated it, Corinthian church, to a place that it should not be. And so tongues is something that I would have you speak, but only if there's interpretation within the public gathering. Again, no time to review that in depth. Go back, listen to the lecture. Last week, we introduced what Paul was actually getting at in 1 Corinthians 14, which was, it was what he called the gift of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. Last week, we tried to deconstruct the sort of Western discomfort with that word. When I say the word prophet or prophecy, some of our eyebrows kind of raise in a little justified skepticism. We think of fortune tellers, future casters, fringe characters with placards and megaphones standing on the sidewalk, screaming doomsday events sure to come upon us. This is what we associate with prophecy. And it could not be farther from what Paul was talking about when he was addressing the need for the practice of prophecy within the people of God. And so again, for this morning, I'm going to ask that you try to set aside the Western baggage that we have associated with the word prophecy. And last week, we built out a fairly robust picture of what prophecy is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. To set up our morning, most of us practice prophecy sometimes without even knowing it, according to the definition of the New Testament. Prophecy is in that space where we're asking God to speak to us. How many of you as Christians, just by a show of hands, have ever prayed, Father, show me what you want me to do? Just by all of us. Okay, what are you hoping for him to say to you in that moment? Because your response to that, the way that you interact with that prayer, is what Paul would call a form of prophetic practice. You see, we're trying to de-weird. <laughs> we're trying to demystify the practice of prophecy because Paul says, in the church at large, I want you all to be discerning God's will for each other and speaking to one another. And in that space, you are operating in the gift, the gift of prophecy. Now, indeed, there are certain people that seem to have a deeper intuition or a greater sense of what patterns are unfolding before them in any social situations or even city situations or national situations. There are indeed those who have a... a a future casting sort of ability that's in a line with the Old Testament, but the primary thrust of New Testament prophecy, as we're defining it, as Paul defines it, is divinely ordered speech that is not authoritative like the Bible is authoritative, but indeed comes from the Spirit through the medium of our voices, images, minds, music, and it is indeed fallible. So a lot to talk about here. We're not going to be able to talk about all of it because I actually just want to get to the practice. But I want to set this up for you guys. From the Bible, we are a Bible people. At Neighbors Church, everything we do is rooted in the Scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. And so I pray that you'll discern and see that there's nothing that we're doing that we can't go directly to chapter and verse, text, and say, here's where we're drawing this from. Here's what we're learning from the Scriptures. Here how the, here's how the Scriptures are guiding us. So when we get to the gift of New Testament prophecy... 
The picture that emerges from the stories in Acts and from the letters to the communities that Paul and Peter and John and James wrote was that prophecy was this very dynamic, hard-to-nail-down activity within the first century church. There were prophets that appeared to have been itinerant preachers. They were traveling about Asia Minor. There were prophets that seemed to be fixed within the local communities, most likely the house church movements that Paul planted in each of these urban centers. Some of these prophets were even considered hierarchical leaders amongst the apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers, and prophets, Ephesians chapter 4. And so, as I already said, most scholars agree that this divinely uttered speech, this participation and partnership with God, in sharing God's will one unto another for the upbuilding of each other was some sort of guidance, impressions, movements of the Spirit, sensitivity to the Spirit, but it was not authoritative in the sense that we were writing Scripture. As I said last week, if somebody comes to you and much damage has been done to the people of God by these type of people and says, thus says the Lord, I have a prophecy for you from on high, and it's equal in authority to as if you were reading the Bible, run, <laughs> run. Very, very dangerous type character. In the New Testament, prophecy was not speaking the direct and infallible words of God's, but it was merely speaking the words, impressions. Most of us are comfortable with this language. I have a peace about this. What do you mean by that? You have a peace about this. Where does that come from? If you have said in your history, I have a peace about going in this direction, you are dabbling your toe in the prophetic space that Paul was talking about for the sake of the church. And so it was for the strengthening. As I said last week, the New Testament communities, when they came together, they didn't come together primarily to listen to one guy talk, like what we do. They primarily came together with an anticipation and an expectation that God the Holy Spirit would gift them, speak to them and through them, to the others around them for their well-being. And this is really what we are praying to revive here at Neighbors, specifically. We want to show up at the Sunday gathering and in our community groups expecting that God wants to speak to us and through us for the well-being of the other in front of us. And this is what Paul says is done primarily through this gift of prophecy. So the content and the characteristics of how prophecy unfolded in the New Testament, friends, it was very, very diverse. The prophetic content of the messages, the way that the messages were spoken, and the way that the words were given, and the way that the impressions and visions and dreams were given, it was very diverse. And the means by which those came, it could come through music, it could come through dreams, it could come through visions, it could come through texts being written, letters being written one unto another. So there was this radical diversity in the unfolding of New Testament prophecy in the first century church. What I want to do now is just briefly walk you guys through three or four core examples from the New Testament from which we draw our practice of listening prayer. Everybody tracking with me? All right, this is super exciting. I love that there's so many new people here today because truly, this is just who we're going to be. It's absolutely beautiful. Let's talk about one of the most surprising facets of prophecy in that there are people in the New Testament who prophesied and they didn't even know they were prophesying. You guys familiar with a man named Caiaphas? Caiaphas was the high priest who crucified Jesus. He and his father, Ananias, they were quite a, quite a duo, and they were gnarly dudes. They had sold out the Jewish temple to uh, the political elite of the day. They were money-hungry. They were just real scoundrels. And there's this scene in John chapter 11, verses 49 to 52. It'll be up on the screens for you. Then one of them named Caiaphas, the scoundrel, the snake. He was the high priest that year. 
he spoke up and he was rebuking the people around him, primarily the religious elite of his day, saying, look, you know nothing at all. Don't you realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? Now, Caiaphas was saying that in reference to the Roman Empire coming down on the Jewish people. And he was saying, look, we've got this lunatic peasant character named Jesus out there. Let's let the Romans nail him, and it will kind of get the attention off of us. He was really a snake. Now, listen. Listen to how John interprets this. I don't know what you do with this, friends. He did not say this on his own, But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. This guy's making a snaky attempt to scapegoat Jesus so that the attention is drawn off of him. He's full of sin. He's a gnarly character in the Bible. And here John says what this man said, the Holy Spirit appropriated or used as a prophetic word out to the world. And not only for that nation did Caiaphas prophesy, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. The only thing that I can draw from a passage like this is that there are going to be times in our lives when we are saying something to someone, we're trying to help them, we're praying for them, or we're, we're trying to give them advice, or, or we're trying to give them counsel, we're trying to comfort them. And we come into alignment with what the overall meta-narrative of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, teaches in reference to whatever their issue is. And the Holy Spirit takes those words and anoints them or appropriates them or uses them in a quote-unquote prophetic way. This can happen over a cup of coffee. This can happen while you're sitting at the water jug with a coworker. This can happen while you are sharing with a kid or spending time with your spouse on a date night or, or whatever you may find yourself. Some of you in this room may have already operated prophetically because the Holy Spirit's like, I don't care if you don't believe in the New Testament gift of prophecy. You just did it. You just did it. I don't know what else to draw from this little scenario here where John says that this real scoundrel who's being real snaky with what he's doing did not do this by himself, but as high priest, he prophesied. Sometimes God will just put us in a role where he gives us the right words. And I think what we have to really fight against is this strange idea that prophecy involves our eyes rolling back in our head. And and darkness shrouding us as a cloud comes over us and some sort of strange trance-like event taking place. Christianity is very normal. Interaction and interplay with the Holy Spirit in the spiritual realm, it's very normal. Us sitting in this room right now, we are interacting with the spiritual realm in ways that we need to remember as Christians. We go to work tomorrow interacting with the spiritual realm. So sometimes we prophesy and we didn't even know it. Everybody track with that little piece? fun. All right, let's go on to Peter. Peter in Acts chapter 10. I'm not going to read the entire scene. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Peter is praying. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, and many, many strange things for a good little Jewish boy are happening. And so Peter goes up on the roof to pray, and he has this vision of a sheet coming down. And within the four corners of the sheet are all of these animals, clean and unclean animals listed out in the book of Leviticus. As Peter is watching this sheet come down, just try to get Try to get your head around this image. This would be strange. And friends, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Did Peter see this vision out there in some sort of trance? Did Peter see this vision as if it was like this? It just took him over? Possibly. Luke literally tells us that in this scenario, Peter fell into some sort of state. We're not quite sure what it was. But he saw it either out there or in his mind's eye. 
As he's watching this sheet come down, this voice says, Peter, don't call unclean what I've made clean. <laughs> and then Peter's like, what? No, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat lobster because good little Jewish boys couldn't eat lobster. I don't know why. And, and no, I'm not going to eat anything. I've never eaten un- anything unclean. So the vision happens again. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to eat anything unclean, Lord. And then the vision happens again. Three times Peter sees this strange vision and tells God, no, it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. So three times this happens, and then the vision ends. After the vision, these, these men who had spoken to a, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who, by the way, had been given a message from an angel. That's a whole nother, whole nother scenario. An angel comes to Cornelius, tells Cornelius, you need to go meet this guy, Peter. Cornelius sends his people to go meet Peter. And right as Peter's visions end, these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, show up at his house, and they all end up going up. And Peter realizes that the vision was to teach him that he had once considered Gentiles unclean and separated from God's plan, but now he was to take them in. He was to eat alongside them. He was to be one with them. Now, what I want you guys to capture here is the imagery and the bizarreness. What at first just seems so outlandish, what in the world is a sheet and bats and buffaloes and llamas and butterflies coming down in the sheet and God saying don't, or God saying eat, and Peter saying no, I don't want to eat, I've never eaten. What does that have to do with life? But as the vision was meditated on and unfolded, it became clear that it meant the Gentiles were to come into the, into the church. God was speaking in this very diverse, strange way through an image, through a vision. Everybody tracking with that? Okay, let's move on to Paul. Just a couple more. Moving on to Paul. Paul was quite a character. He was brilliant. He would have made an incredible lawyer. He was a a philosopher on par with none. Paul was a rationalist, and not in the sense that we understand it, but he was a brilliant thinker. And yet Paul had these experiences that just elude us as modern Westerners. In 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, out of an act of humility, tries not to refer to himself, but it is himself that he's talking about, where he says he was caught up into the third heaven, where he heard things that he could not relay to other people. We, as late Western moderns, we just sort of gloss over it. Caught up to the third heaven, weird ancient people doing weird stuff. That's, we have to wrestle with that. The founder of the New Testament church, the, the man upon whom so much of Western justice and morality and law is based was caught up to the third heaven where he saw things and experienced things that he said he could not talk about or put into words. Okay, so we start there with Paul. Now, Paul was a church planter. He was traveling throughout Asia Minor, planting communities just like these all over in the urban hubs throughout Asia Minor. And as you track with Paul's life, you get these glimpses into how he was being guided. Acts chapter 16 is a fascinating case study in how Paul was being guided in a prophetic way by the Holy Spirit to plant these churches. Acts chapter 16 will be up on the screens for you. Chapter chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So there's Paul and his church planting team. Now check this out. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. What? He's traveling about, he's doing a good work, and now the Holy Spirit somehow kept him from going into the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Maesia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What? How? How? 
How? How did this man who's traveling about and he's heading now to urban centers in Asia, somehow the Holy Spirit barred him from going? And the text just simply doesn't tell us. We just know that he was listening to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was guiding his daily activity. And somehow the Holy Spirit said, you are not to go to this area. My wife and I have a story that's very similar to this. We didn't know where we were supposed to go when we were young. We thought we were going to be missionaries. And so literally like Abraham and Sarah, we sold our house. We had three little babies, and we sold our house not knowing where we were going. We sold it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend that. It was scary, but it worked out. So then we, we run into the situation where we think we're going to, of all places, Brajov, Romania, which was literally in the heart of the Transylvanian Mountains. I'm not kidding. Brajov, Romania, we were going to oversee an orphanage, church planting uh, ministry there. So we had sold our house. We're moving to Brajov, Romania. We're going to preach the gospel to Dracula and the whole thing. It was going to be amazing. <laughs> and... <clears throat> In the last meeting, we're meeting with all the uppy-ups that we would be uh, basically accountable to, and I'm sitting there, and it felt like the most horrendous weight in my body. I'm sitting there, and Bob is like, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. We're going to send you over here, and you're going to send you I'm just, And the more Bob was talking, the more I was just like, I can't go, I can't go. We're not supposed to go. We're not. I don't know how I knew we weren't supposed to go. And then I was panicked. My beloved wife with these three little babies, we just sold our house. We don't know where we're going. It's obviously not Brajov. How am I going to tell her that we're not going to Brajov? We told our family we're moving to Romania. The crying, the tears, everything had already happened. And I look over at my wife and I'm just panicking. I was panicking so much that the Spirit was telling me. And I don't know how to tell you that the Spirit was telling me. I just knew that I knew that we could not go. Afterwards, we get in the car, and my wife was experiencing the exact same thing. She looks at me, and she was terrified to tell me, we can't go. We're not supposed to go. And I was like, oh, thank you, God. You're right. We're not. And then, and then it's a long story how we ended up in Seattle and then San Diego. But all along the way, what I want to challenge you Christians to consider is, how is the Holy Spirit guiding you? How is he guiding you? How do you know? How do you know? that he's guiding you, that he's speaking to you. Now watch what happens here with Paul. I gotta speed this up a little bit. So they passed Myasia, they go down to Troas. During the night, latter half of this paragraph, Paul has a vision. Again, in these visions, friends, we don't need to think of them as like some grand hallucination. Visions oftentimes, like right now, think of a pink elephant. You are envisioning a pink elephant. That's the power of the human brain. It's so, it's so incredible what God has given us in this space right here in the neofrontal cortex, this thing that can administer so much power. So he has a vision of a man uh, of Macedonia standing and begging him. So picture this now. He, he has a vision of a man. It's a man. And the man is saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul's seen this vision. We got ready at once. We left for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You can't go to Asia. Don't know how he knew that. He just couldn't go. Can't go to my Asia. Don't know how he knew that. He just knew not to go. Then he has this vision of a man saying, come help us down in Macedonia. He's like, okay, let's go. Now God's guiding us down there. On the Sabbath, Acts chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, we went outside the city to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Uh-oh, something's wrong here. If it's a prophetic vision, wouldn't it be a man? Shouldn't it be a man? Was Paul a false prophet? Did he get it wrong? Did he mess up? Did the Holy Spirit mess up and not know that it was going to be a woman? I don't think so. What's happening here? We sat down, we began to speak to the women there. One of those listening was a woman 
of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Can't go to Asia, can't go to my Asia. Don't know how he knew that. He just knew by the Holy Spirit. Here's a vision of a man. You show up in Macedonia. Who do you find first? A woman, a lady in purple. A, a, she was a businesswoman. Lydia probably was the first church planter in Philippi. She hosted the church, the house church that met in Philippi. Here's what I want you folks to grasp. Caiaphas is a snake. He's prophesying because God the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to use your words to impact the world, period. Paul's out traveling. You've got Peter having these strange visions. Whose, the visions are odd, but they do correlate to reality, to what God is doing biblically speaking in the world. Then you've got Paul caught up to the third heaven. We don't even know what that is. You've got Paul having visions of a man, but then when he shows up on the scene, it's a woman. And from that, we can draw that this practice of being guided by the Holy Spirit, it's not like a straight line. It's not Old Testament. If you say the wrong thing, you get rocks thrown at you till you're dead. It's fallible. It's a little more squishy. It's kind of, we don't know where to go. We're, we're, we're bumping along as we go. And God, the Holy Spirit, in our common vernacular is giving me a piece about it, guiding us. Or I just don't have a piece about it. I just have this tension in my body. Everybody tracking with that? Okay, here's where we get into some really interesting stuff about interpreting these prophecies. Agabus, we're gonna jump forward to uh, Acts chapter 21. We reached Caesarea. Paul's still out doing all of his church planting stuff. We stayed at the house of Philip, uh, the, the evangelist, one of the seven. Now, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. We don't know what they were prophesying. We just know that this man had four girls, and they were just getting after it. After we'd been there, there were a number of days. A prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea. So whoever this man was, Luke recognizes it as one of the, one of the primary guides of the church. Coming over to us, he took, now check it out. He gives this weird, he's an actor. He's going to symbolize what's going to happen. So he takes Paul's belt. And I would have been like, hey, dude, don't touch my belt. But he takes Paul's belt, and then he ties his hands and his feet with it. And he says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's an ominous prophecy. That's, if you're sitting in small group and somebody grabs your belt, weird, number one, but if they bind themselves and say, if you end up going to Los Angeles, you're going to be beat up there. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. And you would think that Paul would be like, got it, chief. I think I'll avoid Jerusalem. That's what everybody interprets Agabus's message to mean. Watch what happens. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's obvious, Paul, this is an ominous vision from God. This is an ominous prophecy. This is not going to go well. Please don't go. They are interpreting this particular act in this prophetic moment in a certain way. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus when, we, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Caiaphas prophesies, doesn't even know it. Peter has this weird vision that then amplifies his acceptance of the Gentile peoples. Paul, Paul's caught up into this weird thing that we don't even know where the guy goes and he won't talk about it. Paul has a vision of a man 
having not been able to go to Asia or Myasia, has a vision of a man, but then when he shows up, it's a woman. So there's something a little bit mysterious and squishy there. Agabus shows up on the scene and says, hey, check this out. I'm going to do a little drama here, and you're going to be bound and beaten in Jerusalem. Everybody interprets it as don't go, and Paul's like, you're all wrong. I'm supposed to go. The point I'm trying to make is this is very dynamic, even in the way that we interpret these words. And this is why we would say this is not scripture, friends. What we are seeing in the New Testament is not the writing of scriptures. We fit in the framework of scriptures through this. Remember, all of us start our mornings with our Bibles on our laps. That's the primary way that we hear from God, reading through the scriptures. And by the way, almost all Christian traditions have always held that for the Bible reading to make any sense, you have to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Nobody's weirded out by that for some reason. But truly, there's really not a Christian, conservative Christian tradition that doesn't teach that you need the illumination of the Spirit just to read the scriptures and hear from God. All we're doing here is we're engaging with what the New Testament seems to intimate was a normal part of their Christianity. And Joel says that same thing is happening to all of us. One more passage, and then we're going to get to our practice this morning. Acts chapter 13. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menenean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So you've got a whole host of, you've got a lot of different ethnicity going on there. You've got some social hierarchy going on there. You've got a servant of Herod the Tetrarch. You've got some social elite happening there. You've got Barnabas, who would have been a low on the totem pole guy. And you've got Saul, this rabbi who's having visions and planting churches all over Asia Minor. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, now listen, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Next week, we're going to bring Weston here, our first church planter, the Holy Spirit, we believe has set him apart to go and plant our first church. But here's the question. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent him off. It says, the Holy Spirit said, how did they hear? What does that mean? We just read over that like, okay, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and told them to send Paul and Barnabas. How? How? Was it a voice? Was it an impression? In our language, was it, well, we're praying for Paul and Barnabas. They have this desire. We all have a peace about that. So let's send them. I think it was all of that. I think it was all of that. So what we want to do now is ask ourselves here as 2022 modern, urban, San Diegan Christians, what does this gift mean for us? If Paul's like, I want you to expect to speak to one another, to guide one another, to care for one another for your well-being, we're back in 1 Corinthians 14, I'm calling you, the values of this church, the values of this church call and challenge you to declutter your life, to slow down and consider and contemplate all that creation and your life is as a platform for the Holy Spirit to come and speak to you through the scriptures, but also in any given moment. How do we actually practice prophesying? Well, we close our eyes, we roll our, back, we roll our eyes back in our heads. <laughs> we deepen our voice when we prepare to talk. We hope for an echo. I hope angel wings. I don't, I don't know. This is what, it's not weird. This is how we do it. We just call it listening prayer. Listening prayer. And I just want to do a brief training on it. To do listening prayer, we say, be still, ask, listen and observe, share and weigh. Okay? I'm going to walk you guys through these briefly. Be still, ask, listen, and observe, share, and weigh. Sure, you can leave that up. Be still. Number one, when we do listening prayer, all we're doing is saying, hey, let's get still here for a moment. Let's put our phone away. Let's maybe not eat for a day or two. 
or let's just show up on Sunday morning and let's be still in the gathering. Let's actually just get still here and just become present to the sounds. Let's be still. We're going to take a few deep breaths. We're going to calm down the nervous system. We're going to just get into this place where we are simplified, considering, listening. Then we're just going to ask. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what he wants to speak to you or through you. Now, of course, normally when we're doing listening prayer, it's usually for someone. So like in community groups, somebody will come and they'll say, I've got this decision I'm trying to make, or I've got these, this pain that I'm trying to deal with, or I need this comfort in this place, and we'll say, let's do listening prayer. And then we'll just wait, and we'll ask in reference to this person. Today we're going to do it for our community. And you just wait. And this is the point where we as good Western analytics find ourselves saying, well, that was just my thought, or was that just my thought, or maybe that was my thought, or how would the Holy Spirit interact with the synopsis in my brain? And that's awesome. That's normal. What I want to encourage you with, and where I have finally come to rest, because I am, I am the chief of analysts when it comes to this kind of stuff. The images, the, the thoughts, the words, yeah, it may just be the pizza that you ate. Yes, it may just be the synopsis in your brain, but God the Holy Spirit is involved in that. He is present at all points in time, longing to use whatever crumbs of offering we bring to him. And so we don't need to analyze it like, adults, which part was me? Which part was the Holy Spirit? He, you will never know that this side of the kingdom come on earth. What we do is by pure faith, we say, Holy Spirit, bring to my mind thoughts, images, presence, ideas, impressions, all these things. And then we wait. Some of us with our artistic personalities get incredible images. Some of us, uh, some of us have the inability, we, it's called aphantasia. You literally cannot have like, you can't have images in your brain. And so you just have words. Some of us will get scriptures. Some of us will have a sense in our body. Some of us will just have an impression. Some of us will have nothing. Christians, the contemplative piece of Neighbors Church is important here. The contemplatives have always taught that as you mature in Christianity, you learn to not rely so much on the images, visions, and impressions. You learn to just trust. But as novices, God wants to grant you this relational sort of bottle milk where he wants to interact with you in, this, in such a way. But when you enter into the dark nights of soul and the dark nights of senses and the dark nights of spirit, everything goes black. And God is trusting you to trust him. He's offering you a point of maturity. More on that in the life of our church much, much later. For today, we are asking the Holy Spirit to interact with us. Now, as you ask, listen and observe. It's that simple. You literally just let the thoughts come and you're just observing which one of those stuck out. Why would that one stick out? And as you're listening and observing, you're just saying to yourself, okay, what might this impression mean for this person? What might this sound, what might this image, what might this verse mean for this person? And then you ask God those things. God, what do you mean by, do you want to expand on this vision? Do you want to expand on this impression, this sense? Do you have more scriptures that you might want to share with me for them? And then you share. And when you share, you share as an act of pure faith recognizing, yes, this could just be my memories from Awana verses when I was five years old. And God, the Holy Spirit, wants to use those Awana verses from when you were five years old in a prophetic way. Not eyes rolling back in your head, crystal ball fortune telling, but as a lover of the soul in front of you to edify them and build them up. This should be our expectation. And then finally, we weigh it. This is what Paul commands in the gift of New Testament prophecy. Weigh it. Weigh it according to what? 
For them, it would have been, does this weigh out with what the apostles and Jesus have been teaching? For us, we have that record in the Bible. So can we go to chapter and verse? I want to give you guys a brief example of this, and then we got to really get to these practices. Brief example of weighing this. So a number of years ago, a friend of mine had a bizarre dream. And this guy was like the non-dreamer type. He was like, I don't ever have dreams. I'm not that guy. I don't even like raising my hands in worship. But he shows up. This was when we were in Seattle. And he said, I had a vision of you. You were climbing up these cliffs. And there was like pine trees. And you were climbing up these really steep hills with these pine trees. And you had this massive chainsaw. And you were just cutting down, chainsawing down a path. And you had to go perfectly straight. Even if, the, even if the hill was going as steep as you can imagine, you just had to go perfectly straight. And then you'd come down into this valley and you'd swing this thing and trees would just be falling. And then you'd have to go up over this thing, up over another hill. But behind you was a whole community of like 40 or 50 people. And they were trying to help you, but you were so scared that you were going to cut them. They were actually getting in the way. They were like thinking they were going to help you swing the chainsaw, but in trying to help you swing the chainsaw, you were like trying to keep them away so that they wouldn't get cut with the chainsaw. And I was like, Dan, that is a weird dream, dude. I don't know what that means. He's like, I don't know what it means either. It was vivid and it was real. And I was like, all right, well, we'll sit on it. It must have been two or three weeks later, I was reading uh, John the Baptist. And the words, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, took that in my body and just went boom. And it was like suddenly I realized, oh, I'm replanting this church. And these sweet people that have really sort of lost their way, we are trying to prepare a straight way to make the valleys high and the mountains low, a straight way to prepare the way of the Lord. And right now, what they think they're doing is helping me, but it's actually not helping me. It's just getting in the way until we can get this particular path cleared. It took a scenario that I was in chapter and verse, and made a ton of sense, much like what happened with Peter. When we weigh things, all we're doing is we're asking ourselves, is this word that's given to me, does it line up with where I could find this idea, this image, this piece in Scripture? As well, it's very common within the New Testament gift of prophecy to say, does this resonate with you? Ask the person. Literally ask them, is what we just shared with you, does it mean anything to you? How do you interpret it? Because remember, Paul interpreted Agabus' message as, I'm going. And the rest of them were like, you shouldn't be going. So there's this diverse way of interpreting the actual words that are given to us. And all of us will prayerfully be guided forward. All right.